0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com
1: slash style.
0: So what's happening on the London food scene right now? Has the economy changed the way we eat? Is fine dining a thing of the past? And what was Londonist's food writer's biggest gastronomic gaffe? Yes, we're going south of the river and we're going foodie this week. Brought to you by Londonist and sponsored by Audible. It's Friday the 25th of April, 2014. I'm in Quentin Wolf. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down So we'll play
2: some strange sights and the sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a song through
0: from your front The sound of, of Pecora. I wish we could get some sort of smell involvement going on with the recording here today because the smells of herbs and spices wafting from the dishes on the table before us are quite fantastic. We've got potato cakes, we've got pakora, we've got uh, a beefy business there, we've got a bunch of uh, sauces uh, with tamarind and various other things looking good. Uh, where are we? We're at Zambura, which is a restaurant that I'm warming to quickly and it's uh, near Clapham Common, it's in the old town area of Clapham. Around the table with me, Miriam Nice, who is a food writer and uh, she's just brought out her book Cooking Without a Kitchen. Sounds like a challenge we need to investigate further. Ben Norum, he's the Londonist food and drink editor and he's going to deliver some information as to what's going on in London on the food scene. And uh, delivering food itself, Amir Ahmad, who's a restaurateur, entrepreneur and owner of Zumbura. We have to thank this man for the food. Thank you very much, you're very welcome. Run us through what we're tucking into here in terms of the delicious ingredients please
2: oh so the pakoras are a very traditional indian snack it's made with chickpea flour it's like a chickpea flour fritter with onion and spinach we have potato cakes again a very home style dish with onions and garlic and ginger um, and a chapli kebab which is like a flat beef kebab as well
0: which is marinated overnight and uh, is barbecued afterwards. Well, I wasn't at all sure what I was going to be... Sit- I mean, I'm grateful for anything at this time on a Friday afternoon, I must say, but I was really not sure what kind of cuisine was going to be on offer here. I thought perhaps it was Indian cuisine, which I normally associate with big piles of rice and uh, big sloppy dishes of, of stuff. Uh, this looks very much neater and cleaner and fresher. Uh,
2: yes, absolutely. I mean, Zambura is about home-style food, so we are doing very regional food from literally from the village that my parents came from. or family recipes researched, for the last, you know, years of pulling them together. And a lot of Indian restaurants have a sort of mishmash of food from all different parts of India. Uh, And so it really never isn't the same as what Indian people actually eat at home. So our food is about having something that we would eat at home, uh, much simpler, much lighter, everyday cooking, Uh, not the heavy gloopy sauces that people usually think of with Indian food and not something that's going to sit in your stomach for days Um, but something that's light and fresh, lots of vegetables,
0: you know, uh, and and an easier eat. And a coherence to the menu as well i 'll be coming back to that and maybe talking about uh, how, how the dishes tie together and also the cocktails that you 've treated us to today this it 's one of those recordings listener uh, Ben Noram, I need to turn to you at this point and give you the the huge question what is going on in London in terms of food at the moment, and by that, I guess I really mean are there trends that you 're noticing? I wonder whether Zimbura falls into one of those trends. Uh, what are you seeing as a food and drink editor of londonist uh,
3: yeah. Well, I mean, for a start, I think that it is a, a very big question um, because there is so much going on in the food and drink scene in London at the moment. Um, a lot of people, international critics, international chefs, will say London is the most exciting city for food and drink in the world. Um, obviously, that's a, a tall order, but I think it's one that it does live up to. One of the main trends, I think, is sort of the... It could be called the democratisation of food um, in that you don't have to go somewhere big and expensive and flashy in order to eat very well. Um, I think you can see that in street food. There's obviously street food markets all over London at the moment, um, and that does tie into Zambora. It's sort of, it's a very it's a small plates, it's, it's sharing concept. It is reminiscent of street food in that in that aspect. It's also affordable and casual. Yet that doesn't mean there's any sort of less less quality there. There's a lot of talk at the moment about whether fine dining is actually dying out. I wouldn't say that it is, but People are wanting a different thing from a restaurant. People like to eat out in London and they like to eat out twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, rather than saving up for just one special meal. I think it's interesting you can look at even a big name like Gordon Ramsay, who very recently opened London House in Battersea. He's it's a much more affordable restaurant, more casual, than many of his others. Um, so even somebody of his caliber isn't wanting to charge over the odds for food anymore.
0: There's a lot of stuff you're opening up already there, and the uh, the fine dining you know, i 'm not sure if I'm about to be terribly offensive to you, Miriam <laughs> the, the, the fine dining sort of ethos is not what I connect with your uh, cooking without a kitchen <laughs> idea, but I could be completely wrong about that, and I'm, I'm interested as well how that ties together with Amir 's point of view because it it's home cooking of uh, of a very different sort
1: yeah home cooking's definitely my favorite obviously
0: <laughs> but home cooking with hair dryers, etc.. <laughs>
1: Yeah, occasionally when needs must. Yeah, yeah. But um, fine dining restaurants kind of scare me a little bit. So, yeah, this kind of thing is much, much more up my street. Yeah. Is
0: it simply the level of pretension going on there?
1: Um, A little bit and just, want, you know, worrying that um, I'll do something wrong or, yeah, just, like, put my glass in the wrong part of the table or something like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: OK, so it really is part of the duty of a restaurateur then to get the diner to feel a certain way. I mean, we know about the mood music and the ambiance, but maybe taking the edge off social anxiety as well. Ben, you're talking about uh, dining being a very uh, social thing. Amir, I should come to you, of course. How do you go about affecting the sort of ambience you're looking for?
2: Um, the, uh, for me, the, the way that we were tr- uh, treating our food, it's all about sharing. It's about informality. It's about things coming when they come there's no particular order there's no um huge etiquettes that we have to follow in fact to be honest one of the things that we wanted to do because we wanted to make it a very authentic home indian place we were originally thinking of having no cutlery whatsoever because people in india eat with their fingers that's how we eat. we eat sharing plates, plates big families uh, and even now I'm quite reluctant to give somebody a knife because I just think that's sort of you know, giving away. I've allowed you use forks today. That's it's, about, it's very good of you, think. <laughs> Quite generous. But normally that's, that's the limit of my patience. And, uh, and there's something so wholesome about having a group of friends together, a mix of dishes, everybody sharing, and you just pile in. And there isn't, you know, it, it's the best way to, to actually get to know people, to be with somebody.
0: Well, now hold, hold on a second. I mean, you must have heard these horror stories from, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago when they stopped putting bowls of peanuts on the bar in pubs because they, <laughs> they tested the peanuts and they found you don't want to know what.
2: Yeah, well, only have friends that wash their hands, maybe. <laughs> <It's> really, <laughs> maybe <laughs> awesome. but, yes. but I think it's, there is something about, um, for me, eating a meal... Beautifully presented, like a piece of art on your own. I, I can't do it. I just, I always want to share what somebody else has on their plate, rather than what's just on my plate. And it's nice once in a while, but it does feel like something that you you, you can't really get stuck into. It's nice to look at, but not really to enjoy. I'm not sure about this no cutlery
0: business. If there's anyone who's fond of uh, stripping down the kitchenware to the bare essentials, I mean, what, what do you make of this idea, Mary?
1: I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, have lots of friends that wash their hands. Maybe bring some antibac gel with you if you're worried. But no, no, it's great. This is exactly how I would do a dinner party at home anyway. Because um, the fact that it's on little plates and you know you can serve it when you want. Half of my friends probably be late anyway, so <laughs> sort of bring it out in stages. Make you know fits in. You're less stressed. Yeah, some stuff hot, some stuff cold. Perfect.
0: I do like that. I'm, I'm a big fan of the leftovers. And I, I quite like an accumulation of leftovers in little pots. Is it a bain-marie where you've got the, the warm pots of...
1: Yeah.
0: Of, mm. yeah it was, I'm talking to the wrong person, Miriam. <laughs> we, we should explain because I'm joking about your lack of kitchenware, but you're cooking without a kitchen idea. Can, can you just unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. It's a, a book with uh, tw- 20 recipes, um, which you can make with, without a kitchen. So the only heat sources you use would be an iron, a hairdryer, or a kettle, or none of those, to make all the recipes.
0: Well, I tell you what we should do is we should have a a sample recipe because I can't quite get my head around this. Even in in spite of having seen a demonstration of you going about your business, where well, I was just noticing you spitting onto a hot iron and getting ready to do something. But what were you cooking there and how how were you producing it?
1: Um, Yeah, at my book launch I made pancakes with an iron. So yeah, made a quite thick pancake batter and you put it onto some greaseproof paper, you fold it up to make a parcel and then you iron the parcel. So the iron doesn't actually touch the pancake batter, but the pancake cooks inside.
3: Well, I was just thinking that I don't actually have a hairdryer or an iron, so <laughs> it's not maybe that useful for me. But, um, but uh, it's very fascinating. I'm tempted to try some of it out. I'm not sure if there would ever be a, a restaurant that would go to that level of maybe space saving, fit a few extra tables in by getting into the kitchen, but it's not... It's not out of the question
0: well let's go I wanted to latch onto that uh, fine dining thing that you were were talking about there and if I'm being quite honest I tend not to go out for food very much so I'm a bit unaware as to what's going on especially in the West End where I'm I'm just terrified to get hungry or because a slice of pizza costs 27 pounds or you know some popcorn a fiver so it's a good idea not to get hungry in the West End from my point of view but is that where the the fine dining is happening is it localised around London Uh, how does it work
3: Uh, It's a mix. I think uh, central London, the West End, obviously Mayfair. There's still a lot of very swanky, very expensive restaurants in hotels there. Um, They will probably always be there, but they are catering for the few who have that money to spend. Soho is bustling. There are so many places opening up by the week. Um, It's not about... things aren't expensive. Um, Popcorn won't cost you a fiver or, or a slice of pizza won't cost you very much at all um it's just it is an element of knowing where to go um and the more touristy the area the more you might be tried to be ripped off but i think that is changing um brasserie Zadel is one restaurant that comes to mind right at piccadilly circus a french brasserie um and you can get you can eat there for well under 20 pounds in including a, a couple of courses and a drink um, obviously you it is quite possible to spend a bit more there as well but it's a really refreshing change to see a restaurant of that style um, in, in central London that you can you can eat at for that price. So what do
0: you find yourself doing then, Ben? Are you reviewing individual establishments most of the time or do you take a, a, a wider-lensed view of the city?
3: Um, both. I, I, I do eat out a lot and I review a lot of restaurants. Um, as part of that, I get wind of trends. I see things that restaurants are doing similarly, different approaches to how things are done. I think the the fine dining one is something that's really quite prominent. I will notice restaurants that have been fine dining in the past changing their service style because does anybody actually want a waiter to, to put a napkin on your knee? No. It, 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 there's no way that that isn't awkward for anyone, you know. So I think it's a good thing that, that restaurants are starting to move away from that.
0: Something I find very invasive... I'm not sure whether I should mention the chain, although we may well know which one we're talking about. It's a sort of a pan-Asian place with lots of branches and you tell them what you want, and then they lean over and they scribble on your placemat. And I find that ex- <laughs> extremely invasive. Yeah. What about when you go to visit, given your interest in food, when, when you visit a, an eating establishment, not your own in this case, I mean, how do you go about evaluating what's in front of you? And- it's
2: For me, it's about authenticity and whether somebody's doing something they believe in. So the, the more regional, the more... Um, family style uh, the food is the better so if I want to find places I like are where uh, you know a Japanese chef is doing some sushi and has been doing it since he was like three years old and or a little little regional Chinese or a Korean or something you know and just finding those places where people are making food that they've grown up with that they believe in and that isn't contrived that's not not something they reinvented I'm a bit of an old-fashioned person in that way so um, you know, a cool environment is fine, but when it comes down to the food, the food has to be something that people have lived and breathed and grown up with. And if I can feel that, if I can see that they understand what they're doing, and they're not pandering to uh, a Western taste, they're trying to do something which is well, this is the way we do it. This is how we've always done it. Take it or leave it. So you you would go for the East Empire mashups then on that level? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I mean, exactly, those sorts of places are the best, you know, uh, because I think you, you've you've got to have had a way know how to eat the food to be able to make it so if you've been eating that food for years and you've grown up with it then you understand what the flavor is about so if it's a regional italian or if it's somebody making a a simple stew that they've done for years and they've grown up with those things are the things that i enjoy I, i find there's sort of a soul in that
0: food which is which is nice well you use the term authenticity I'm keen to know what a cynical restaurant might be like, so I'm going to come back to you for that. Ben, what about you when you're reviewing? Do you, first of all, do you let people know whether you are reviewing or not?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, Londonist always reviews restaurants anonymously. Um, it's a policy that we have, and I think it obviously is the best way to get the, the most realistic experience. However, I have also reviewed restaurants for other publications in the past which haven't been anonymous, um, and it uh, it's simply comes down to not having the, the budget or, uh, to, to pay for those meals, but i I think the food is probably you can judge it fairly either way, but the service is what 's different. If people know you 're there and they are aware you 're going to be writing about it they 're going to give you a bit of special attention and that 's not what you want really um, in terms of what i think how I would judge a restaurant i mean obviously it's a it 's a personal experience. people like different things, and you have to be aware of that. Some things could be done very badly, burned, etc, raw in the middle, um, and that is obviously not correct but generally it is, it is a personal preference and what I really look for in a restaurant is what makes it special I think there are so many restaurants in London that in order to go to this restaurant spend your money there and if I'm going to recommend people do that there needs to be something special about it. There are so many restaurants that you could take out of London to a smaller city or somewhere without such a good food scene, and they would be a great place to, to go out. But you wouldn't go to them in London, or I wouldn't recommend you would, because they're just not as good as somewhere else that you could go that does, does the same thing but better. Is
0: this a part of the food writing scene that you get involved with, Miriam? Do you review?
3: occasionally
1: but it's not the main the main thing mostly i just write my own recipes um so when i go out for dinner it's a bit of a break for me so i quite like restaurants where either there's a quite a small menu so i don't really have to make that much of a decision or i can ask for a recommendation and they can tell me what to have because i eat pretty much anything so i want to know that they eat the food and that they enjoy the food Uh, and yeah i don't want to make a decision
0: Do you find yourself in that place where you've been, you've sort of been immersed, not literally, well maybe, who knows, immersed in food all day. If you just don't want to be thinking about food and maybe you don't want to be thinking about healthy food or maybe you don't want to be thinking about, I know um, a lot of people have unhealthy habits who are often involved in uh, sort of health things for instance you just pick out on stuff that you uh, you know isn't particularly well put together just for the sake of not thinking about it.
1: Oh quite possibly. I had a big pot of marmalade boil over the other day and had fish and chips for dinner. So yeah, <laughs> yeah that just happened.
0: <laughs> a woman who makes her own marmalade I'm impressed. <laughs> I feel we should declare our interests here today because you've mentioned Ben about uh, not getting special service. We should declare that Amir has, uh, has has laid on this feast. Um, uh, Frankly, no, no,
2: I had no idea that you who you were, and uh, I, I would always come and sit with everybody at their table. Oh, this is the standard. Yes, I I, I insist on sitting at people's tables. I <laughs> did with them. That's the only way that you can really get to know your guests.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, now you're going to have a flock of people arriving and expecting that you know? uh, If I don't taste uh, something from these dishes I'm going to be very unhappy What would you recommend?
1: Um, I'm munching the kebab at the moment which is absolutely delicious yeah. What,
0: what flavours are you picking
1: up? Um, ooh, to eat some more <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh what a chore
3: well, Maybe we need our reviewer here Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying this um, battered fish um, very different from obviously the most common battered fish of fish and chips but really succulent and it's quite subtle spicing actually I, I couldn't tell you exactly what was in it which I think is probably the point because there's I imagine a lot of spices in there all working together um, and really going well with the tamarind chutney as well I'm thoroughly enjoying it very bright bold flavours
0: I just had a mouthful of potato cake there and that's got a nice slow warm oh. spice accumulating at the end there's, there's got to be chilli in there um, <laughs> it's yeah, we, I mean, some of our things are spice at different levels, and
2: so that's not, you know, that's probably slightly spicier than many of the other things, but nothing that we have is should be, blow your head off. It should be all stuff that is, you know, um, a nice, easy spice to take, a little bit of warmth, and that's about it. Because it's something that you eat at home every day, and you don't want to be um, downing gallons of milk afterwards, you know. Ah, uh, it's true about milk, then. Yes, it is. Uh, or bread is better, actually. But <laughs>
0: Bre- bread to reduce yeah, spice? Definitely, yeah. Bread to eat something rather than to liquid it does, yeah. Ooh, that's a useful one. Okay, I'm banking that. Uh, we only have forks, but I want us to stick the knife in. Um, n- negative reviews or uh, how to do food inauthentically. Um, disastrous experiences you've had on the London food scene, uh, possibly at the hands of uh, somebody else producing the stuff.
3: Um, well, I think... I've been lucky enough not to have had too many absolutely atrocious meals. I think, coming back to what I said before, I think the worst meals that I feel I've had are the ones where you are charged an absolute fortune and the food just doesn't cut the mustard. There is no reason why you would eat there. Um, I went to a restaurant, which I won't name, in Mayfair, not too long ago. Um... It was a newly opened restaurant um, and it sounded like, you know, from the, the way it was described, it was like, oh, this is something to, to check out. It's a bit different, authentic Italian cooking. Um, and it was just very, it was over the, over the top with ingredients like truffles and um, foie gras. And the, the idea was clearly, if we put enough of these ingredients on there, some mug will come by it and it just wasn't enjoyable. It's not my style of restaurant in the slightest that.
0: Oh, I must say the sorts of restaurants I've been to you said that was in Italian yeah. and one of the best places I've ever been was in Italian uh, where the dishes were so simple that they, they almost seemed insulting I wondered yeah. what I walked into it was sort of one piece of asparagus on a plate or a piece of cheese on a piece of bread I thought really but it, the quality of the ingredients was exceptional and, and each one you found yourself savouring um, I'm going to resist doing the sycophantic uh, comparison with the food we're eating today which is uh, similarly rich but the, the quality of ingredients it is surely of massive importance. I see you've got a strong concept for the, the piece here, but I suspect your cooking uh, extends beyond that. Unless you you're not really at home all the time with the hairdryer, eh? No, no. Like,
1: okay, <laughs> I do use the kitchen most days. This is just for like emergencies if I'm stuck in a hotel room. But yeah, most of the time I'm in the kitchen.
0: What's your angle, interview? What are your sort of principles that you uh, work with, particularly perhaps if you're serving for other people?
1: Yeah, uh, things that are relatively healthy easy to prepare um, and easy for the ingredients to be easy to get hold of so don't try and put really obscure you know things that people can get from their corner shop really I think that's important suppose
0: actually that's one of the things I've been discovering is where where you're based in London you're going to have very different corner shops potentially particularly I mean I'm quite interested in dabbling in the odd curry here or there and believe me they don't come out particularly well but in the east end the number of corner shops selling um, well put together authentic spice packs and pre-mixed Indian spices that look like they've come from India I'm at an advantage there even if I'm not a very good cook I was wondering can you get regional with London international cuisine
3: you absolutely can I mean there are are so many pockets of different ethnic communities in London Um, there's I mean you've got a a few a few different areas probably that have have an Indian influence Um, in the east also out further west closer towards Heathrow Um, you've also got a, a strong Turkish contingent in the Dalston area so yeah there are there are a lot of those and I guess you still need to know what you're doing because the, the only downside of that is those shops cater for those communities they know how to use the ingredients, and a lot of the time they 're not going to be able to explain to you how you should use it or you 're not going to be able to get a a cheat sort of version so they they 're good, but you have to know what you 're doing
0: well yes, okay, so what about the crossover between the cultural crossovers I guess what i 'm talking about i think
2: a lot of, I think a lot of people have approached um,
0: regional foods or Indian,
2: you know, say something like if you happen to live near a very good Indian supermarket uh, a lot of my friends have just gone in and started experimenting and asking about vegetables that they happen to have there or asking about what this certain spice does and I think actually if you go and ask and you just want to go and investigate and explore, um, there's worse things you can do than go into, one, into a very traditional ethnic supermarket and pick a few things and ask somebody at the tail, at the what do I do with this? Um, and, and give it a go and you might find something new that you Haven't tried before because, unfortunately, a lot of those a lot of those things that you might find there you won't get in a a restaurant. So we've got vegetables on our menu that aren't on any other menu in the UK, in any Indian restaurant, because it's a very regional, specific vegetable. Um, and well, you well, you're able to get that uh, regional? Yeah, completely. I mean, there's a uh, uh, vegetable called a parval, which is like a, a sort of mini courgette, um, literally is only eaten in about a 50-mile radius of where my family come from. Um, and uh, outside of that is not very well known. So, But it's lovely, and you can go to Tooting, and you can find a, a shop, and you'll buy it and you can take it home and braise it and you can try something new, you know, so it, it, but, and those things are much less hard to find than people often realise, as long as you're prepared to venture outside of Tesco and Sainsbury's and go down uh, uh, the high street and go into a shop where, you know, you, you wouldn't look for things um and and try a few ingredients you can learn a lot about a new type
0: of food I'm a big fan of supermarkets overseas and there are vegetables there that I've never even encountered before wonderful vegetable scapes in the supermarket and I I seem to think Miriam you might be up for a challenge like this but just uh, pick the pick the one thing there that you've never seen before and then take that home and figure out how you can turn that into uh, a delicious food
1: (laughs) yeah I would I I might look it up because there's a couple of things that you can get a little bit poorly if you don't cook it quite correctly but yeah yeah definitely ask and and look it up and have a go really important
0: i wonder if there isn't a market for a cookbook on that sort of subject actually because we all know how to boil a potato I signed up for Abel & Cole. Abel & Cole deliver small boxes of vegetables to you, and they always throw in something interesting, and you get, like, brown sticks, and you don't know what they are, or you get a, a bulbous thing. So I think, I don't know, it, it seems like knowledge is quite an important step forward. You were you surely the person to be imparting that sort of uh, knowledge, hey?
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of those veg box companies often put in a card, and, you know, this time you're getting this, and this is a couple of things that you can do with it. So that's always nice.
0: Oh, I just didn't read the instructions.
1: <laughs> Did you put that in the recycling straight away? Yeah, probably
0: <laughs> <laughs> almost certainly and um, what about because that seems like the usp to me for any uh, or particularly for example the indian restaurants uh, from the, these different regions but it's not something that's marketed it's not something that's communicated i think that individualism and probably just because i think unless i'm misreading the situation completely a lot of people just think go for an indian and it's all going to be the same yeah. thing every time is that ignorance on the part of the consumer or is that the the restaurants individually failing to communicate what makes their particular food special or how, how do you you say that.
2: It's both. I think I, think I am very um, disheartened with the Indian food scene in the UK, mainly because it's just a mishmash of Anglicised food that is just not what we eat at home, and it's not what people in India eat. So India is a huge country with very regional foods, completely different cuisines from different places. Um, and what happens when, when, Indian rest- when chefs come over here is they just make something very Anglicised and, and made up, and a lot of invented dishes, which are completely not an Indian. And they'll take shortcuts. So they'll say, you know, nobody will know what this herb is, what this spice is, or um, so why why bother? So there are, you know, as I said, there's three or four vegetables in our menu that are not in any other Indian restaurant menu that I know of. And they're not because they're not eaten at home. People eat them at home all the time. They just don't think that Westerners would like it. So... If I go to Indian restaurants and if I walk in and say, what can I have to eat? I quite often get told there's nothing for me to eat uh, because they say, you won't like this food. And they're a bit terrified when I walk in, you know, what are you going to eat? Oh, my God, you can't have any of this. It's all for white people, is what they'll say. (laughs) So, you know, it's not for you. So so here, here, most Indian restaurants just are very cynical, unfortunately, and they just cut corners and they don't really believe in their own food and they don't eat their own food. So hopefully in the way that regional food, particularly for Chinese cuisine, is really booming um, and regional things about Italian regional foods or French regional foods. You know, those hopefully Indian regional food is a thing that will start to come up. And I really ha- want to see some of those restaurants do that. And there's a few, one or two maybe for South Indian food that are pretty good. But around the whole of the north, it's just this uh, mishmash of food that people, people do, which isn't which isn't authentic and isn't, uh, isn't something that they believe in. It's just something that they've produced rather cynically to sell to a mass market crowd <laughs>
0: well i think we can see the positive principles that are underpinning your approach to, to your food that you're serving here at zumbura uh, on clapham common uh, amir i know you've got to get away because it's it's friday night and uh, <laughs> and service is uh, gradually getting underway uh, thank you for joining us yeah. and, and thank you very much for, of course for the food but also thank you for hosting us today no problem at all it's been wonderful to be here thank you and we're going to speak to somebody else who's supporting us this is our sponsor
3: London Nest out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk
1: Londonist and click through.
0: We are at Zambur in Clapham Common. And with me are the food writer Miriam Nice and Londonist food and drink editor Ben Norham. Amir Ahmed has left us... With a, a large pile of food Which is just how we like things to be uh, What are you making of the fare here Miriam
1: Yeah I like him, I think we could be friends He's just given us a big table full of food This is fantastic, <laughs> it's delicious
0: It is. I, I was asking you about the food But <laughs> I like the fact that we've got a positive review Of the, uh, the owner as well um, I, I want to dig into uh, who you are As people and how you end up In a position where people are giving you free food I mean I know how I got here but uh, Ben what about you
3: um, Well I I write about food and drink I've written for several publications mainly London based and managed to build up a bit of a knowledge of the London food and drink scene along the way Um, and now edit the food and drink section for Londonist Um, So
0: so how did did that come about then? Was it a drive towards food or, or towards writing or did you fall into it or what happened?
3: It was, I've always been really interested in food. So it started from the food side of things. I studied journalism at university. Wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I probably saw food as more of a, a hobby rather than a career. Um, and then when I needed to decide what to do, I thought, sounds probably a bit, bit more interesting to write about food than go to a war zone or something. So I, <laughs> I started getting into it. And now I wouldn't look back. I, it's, um, it's what I want to do and it's, it's, it's everything. It's my, my spare time and my, and my career, really. How about you, Mary?
1: Um, Yeah, my first job when I was about 17 was in a a French cafe and restaurant in Nottingham. And uh, the owner had written a book, and um, I thought that was really interesting. And as I got more experience in food and more interested in it... I started writing a, um, I wrote a little article which they put in the Evening Post in Nottingham back then and then I started a blog. didn't really think much of it until somebody said, oh, you've stopped writing your blog, can you write it again? Which is really, really sweet.
0: You were blogging about food at this yeah,
1: point? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I moved to London and uh, carried on with the blog, write for some other publications every now and again and then got my first book published um, last year.
0: That sounds so uh, fluid and, and easy that it almost sounds as though you, you didn't realise it was happening. <laughs>
1: A little bit, I mean it was always uh, similar to ben, I suppose it was, it was sort of in the background, it was a bit of a hobby really um, but then when I was doing my degree I did uh, graphic design with illustration, my final project started to be- become like if I were to do a cookbook it would look like this and it just sort of crept into sort of almost everything I was doing and yeah, took, took st- centre stage a bit. yeah
0: we should say the very clever binding going on in the book here is a tea towel i think isn't it it unfolds and becomes itself a utensil. i've never noticed that actually until now that's a certain irony isn't it that you're talking about cooking without kitchen equipment and you're sort of smuggling some kitchen equipment in
1: <laughs> yeah a little bit i mean there are a few little bits that you would take with you there's a kit list so you might take a little grater and a little whisk so there's there's a few little things that you could put in a wash bag that you take with you make your own little kitchen
0: very tempted to try some of this out, but like you, Ben, I don't have a. Uh, it's ironic for two men with so much hair um, that we don't have a hairdryer between us.
3: <laughs> that is quite ironic, yeah. And clearly, our shirts could probably be, be less less creased as well. But yeah, it's <laughs> a yes, fair point.
0: Um, there's there's something that that worries me about the. Um, well, I don't know that it necessarily overlaps completely with with where you are, but I'll, I'll back it up a little bit and say one of the programs that I find myself really uncomfortable with is that one where uh, they get a bunch of chefs on to cook uh, courses for a thing and then they present it to three food reviewers or food critics. I think one of them might be a, a chef herself and they they 've presented these three people with uh, episode upon episode with the most fantastic um, brilliantly put together dishes and experimental food and so forth, and they sort of poke it with a fork a little bit and then turn their noses up at it and prod it around the plate and it 's given me a bit of a jaundiced view of people who uh, look at food for a living and people who are not themselves producing the food and I wonder if there's that element that you might be conscious of in maybe in the circles that you find yourself mixing in or or maybe that's a you you have to keep yourself in check in some respect I don't know if those do those issues surface for you at all
1: yeah I think so I mean I I really love cooking and I like infusing about cooking and I want other people to enjoy cooking and day-to-day cooking and so Sometimes I get a little bit annoyed when that in that circumstance that you've described, it's it's sort of food without a context, and it's you know it's, they're not really sharing it, they're just sort of showing it, and it doesn't really feel that homely, and it doesn't look particularly delicious. And yeah, I think it puts a lot of people off. People think that they can't cook because they can't make something very complicated with lots of sauces and lots of drizzles. And yeah,
0: something that will impress the uh, finely honed taste of these uh, connoisseurs. But isn't there also a bit of uh, a, well, quite a big danger? of egotism uh, on the part of the reviewer or the person who's consuming and proclaiming you put yourself and maybe Ben even more so um at the moment you put yourself in the position of being the person who decides whether or not this is good food and i wonder as as with any situation where somebody's a a critic a reviewer a judge of some sort particularly culturally i wonder whether there isn't the risk that ego can kind of take over
1: Yeah, I suppose so. And also, if there's a lack of experience there, if they haven't really got that much experience of cooking themselves, they might not know what's gone in it or the the difficulties. They're just trying it in isolation. Yeah.
0: Right, so this is perhaps a danger then for you,
1: Ben?
3: It's always a danger. I do cook quite a lot myself as well. Um, I am obviously out quite a lot in restaurants, so I don't cook as much as I might have done at one point, but... I've got a food smoker and a food dehydrator and a few other gadgets in the kitchen, which I do quite like to use from time to time. I'm
0: really impressed. I didn't know they were things.
3: <laughs> they are things. I don't think my neighbour above me is too impressed when I use the food smoker on the balcony, but it gets quite good results. <laughs> it's literally just a, a metal box with a, a sort of um, rack in it. Put some wood chips um, in the bottom, put it over some heat, and then you can, you can smoke your food so get the get the, the smoky taste. I was
0: always under the impression that those uh, smokers, I thought smoked food just had uh, some sort of flavouring added to it that made it seem smoked. I thought that was that was the kind of cheeky way of doing it. It smoked bacon, for
3: example. Cheap food will. If you go to a, a supermarket and buy certain sausages or bacon or other products that say they're smoked, it may just have smoke flavour added, but normally it would it would be properly smoked.
0: Okay, well, that's not going to go down with Miriam. That's complex equipment. Not just not just equipment, but complex equipment.
3: Are you, uh, what are you working on at the moment, Miriam?
1: Um, I mean, apart
0: from the food in front of me.
1: <laughs> well, I'm still doing, doing my blog, um, and I'm, I need to write about something. I've got a new deadline. I've got to write about something about um, kitchen equipment, actually, and about... Um, uh, you don't need extremely expensive kitchen equipment to make to make good food. So yeah.
0: Uh, you're gradually being drawn into the kitchen equipment world.
1: Mm, yeah, well, kind of pushing away a little bit from it. So you know, have a couple of plates and a pair of scissors, and you can do quite a lot.
0: <laughs> I think I'm seeing how this is working. This is quite a clever ploy, isn't it? You start off with no cash and no equipment. You get the advance from the first one. Now you've got slightly better equipment, and you right about that. <laughs> A few books down the road, it's going to be you're going to be on the writing about the smoker and the dehydrator. Either
1: it'll go the either that or it'll go the other way, and I'll have just like a piece of tin and a couple of twigs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are they? Uh, yeah, is that? Is that food? Yeah. What's that?
0: Um,
3: is it paratha? I think. Some
0: kind of bread. Oh, I've gone off the podcast again.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I should say the danger here is every time we get uh, we get the, the conversation begins to flow, and my eye drifts. And I find myself looking at... Uh, well, I've just gone with this pot of paratha. And I, I think we might just put the podcast on hold and eat. You're, you're going to hear uh, eating sounds for the next 20 minutes, I'm afraid. Unless, unless Ben has uh, news of what's going on in London uh, on, on the food scene, which I think you do.
3: Well, um, yeah, I mean, and one thing that I think is interesting, we were talking about a certain television programme where they judge the dishes that contestants cook. And one of the most famous judges from there opened a restaurant not so long ago in London, and it has now shut. I won't mention any names, but there is currently a, an empty space in Putney somewhere that doesn't have a restaurant in it anymore. So I think it just shows. Well,
0: now, hold on. This is this is public knowledge, isn't it? As long as we, <laughs> as long as we don't say anything appalling as to the reasons, um, it's it's our uh, bald-headed fellow, fellow yes. isn't it? It's uh, what's
3: his name, Wallace. Greg Wallace. Yeah, it's Greg Wallace and his restaurant um, Wallace and Co. shut because it just didn't get enough customers through the door.
0: I heard somewhere along the line that he's not actually a chef, so I've got that completely wrong, haven't I? Is it is it the other chap who's not a chef?
3: The, no, the other the other chap, John Trowe, is a chef. Greg Wallace, I guess, isn't a chef. He is a greengrocer, um, but he has opened a restaurant, so he is, well, he was at least a restaurateur. But, but he opened that restaurant off the back of chef.
0: Well, okay, so what, I, what I'm wondering there then is, does it necessarily follow just because you happen to be good at food that you've got the knack for running a business? And it's a, it's a dangerous business as well, isn't it? You open up a, a restaurant and there's a very high chance of it closing down.
1: I think it's very complicated, and also yeah, there's a whole other skill about like, getting simply just getting things ready for a lot of people at different times. It's you know it's very complicated. You can't just if you're good at making dinner, it doesn't mean you're going to be good at making sure that the ingredients are fresh all the time, and making sure that you've got the right staff and mm. yeah, the right atmosphere.
0: Yeah, actually, there's a, a bunch of skills there. So lo, sort of logistics, and uh, I guess the I guess the PR side is really important as well, because a restaurant seems to live or die by the sort of buzz around it
1: yeah and using social media effectively and getting the right people the right people in and making sure it's full all the time it's just a huge amount of skill set that you, you'd need
0: i heard and i heard this from a, a maitre d a lovely italian maitre d i worked with a, a long long time ago who knew everything about the the food business it seemed and he said that the the standard thing uh, was to open your restaurant declare the opening date and then uh, tell everybody that it was booked up and not actually serve anybody on the first couple of days but tell everybody that it was completely overbooked and there are no places, and he said that's a guaranteed way to make sure your restaurant uh, does well in the, in the first weeks and months after I'm not, not sure whether that's true or not
3: I think there is an element of truth in that and going a step further, you've now got a lot of places opening up where you can't even make reservations and people queue out the door um, it's very fashionable for restaurants to be small there are a few places that I've been to where I've, I've been a bit perplexed as to why there is a queue at the door when there's space in that restaurant for a bar area that I'm sure somebody has clocked on they could be making a lot of money from drinks while people are waiting for a table but maybe that just isn't as good PR as having a queue of people down the street.
0: Does that obtain everywhere? I sort of struggle to imagine certain places and I'm, I guess I'm thinking of like St James or somewhere like that I can't really imagine them putting up with queuing up outside the door
3: no, I think you're right. It is a, it's a certain style of, of eating, and it's probably more your, your Soho areas or your East End areas. But, I mean, one of the meat liquor was one of the, the places with the biggest queue. Can
0: I, can I just need to check whether we can broadcast that just a moment. Yeah, OK, it's fine.
3: <laughs> so it's, so it, can, it can happen anywhere. I think that's, it's, it's trendy.
0: Have you tried out any of these pop-up places? Uh, we, Oh my goodness me, I think it would have been three or four years ago we had somebody from Disappearing Dining Club who was uh, fantastic and we. I've, I've, I've since sampled his, uh, his event there and he puts on, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he puts on um, events in the strangest of places and the, the restaurant and the bar will appear for one night only or two nights only and the, everything's of the highest quality. Um, so he had that going on as a, a sort of a pop-up food thing and, and that seemed to be gaining some momentum as a form you seem to me to be the exact sort of person who would be responsible for uh, creating a pop-up dining environment
1: if i could i would yeah definitely i mean it's it's difficult and there are a lot of places who have found out that there are a lot of keen foodies out there who would quite like to you know put a restaurant together and um there are bars that i think would charge you and uh, would take a lot of the profit or would, would charge you to do so which i think is a bit you know but fair enough i think if there's demand there fair enough but it does make it difficult for you to just have a go yeah yeah well that's
0: and i, s- I suppose regulation and uh, the various food hygiene which we're grateful for, for, for having surely the the food hygiene laws and so forth um but doesn't that rub your ethos certainly from the the, the most recent book up the wrong way really because what you're looking at is a kind of a lo-fi down home kind of way of looking at food and that's not really as soon as you you take one step into the professional side of cooking that's n- you can't really do it that way can you
1: well I do I mean I do have like food hygiene and um, training because I also do some private catering so I can go into people's homes and I'll cook dinner for them and um, uh, with my my business partner and um, so that that's quite nice people quite like a kind of pop-up in their own home but that's yeah that's a bit of a trend.
0: Mm. Yeah. Have you ever implemented any of the techniques here in other people's home?
1: No, in other people's hotels I have, yeah. Yeah. So I've been into a hotel and uh, yeah, cooked cooked a dinner party for some actor friends. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay, you saved it at the end there. I was getting the idea that you were doing hotel visits but cooking, honestly. <laughs> what is that?
1: What is like knocking on people's hotel room doors, would you like some dinner No, I don't do that. I don't do that. Would
3: you like a pancake? It's four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking with pop ups um, something that i 've noticed a lot recently is how they 've evolved as well in that they, they were something pop ups an individual would put them on they were often in in hackney or um, in sort of quite far out parts of parts of London where there was a bit of space and people could could find somewhere cheap. people would come along, have a, have a dinner for fifteen pounds, bring their own wine. More recently there's been um, Roganic was quite a, a famous pop-up in, um, in London led by Simon Rogan who's a Michelin-starred chef from the Lake District and that was a two-year pop-up for a start, which I'm not sure at what point that becomes a pop-up anymore. Um, it ceases to be a pop-up and just becomes un- untidy. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and it was also extremely expensive. I can't remember off the top of my head how much it was, but I think you'd struggle to get out of there without spending over £100. Um, we've got Pied New open at the moment, closing closing fairly soon, um, in Marylebone, that is is a similar concept. So it's almost like professional restaurateurs have jumped on the bandwagon of the pop-up which i'm not sure if i like that or not really um in some respects it does offer uh, a lot of really unique experiences but does it take away a bit of the soul of what a pop-up should be i think it maybe does
0: well thinking of the the soul of things i suppose the obvious antithesis to a, a place with soul and that sense of impermanence is the chain and particularly the really big ones is it possible to love a food chain
1: yeah, I, I think it is, yeah, and I think you know what you're going to get, and there's that consistency there, and if there's certain standards of, like, service, then, then yeah, I think it's okay,
0: yeah. Which would you single out? I mean, I guess there's got to be a spectrum here, hasn't
1: there? I quite I quite like, I know you don't like the scribbling on your menu, but I quite like some of the things at Wagamama's, yeah, that that's okay, if you don't want to think about it, and you know that everyone's got, like, a favourite dish that they do always have, like, yeah, so
0: yeah in all honesty i i know exactly what i'm having a number 56 every single time i go in there there's no variation whatsoever what about you ben
3: i don't really frequent any of the big chains that's not because i have a a big dislike of them but when there are so many places to try in london they're not at the top of my list by any means there are a lot of smaller chains emerging in london though and growing by the day um the likes of oaxaca the mexican restaurant chain um or several of the sort of Um, higher-end burger chains, which are really doing well, very popular. You've got um, Hawksmore. You know, I think few people would put it in the same category as Pizza Express, but it is now quite a a sizeable chain. And so, obviously, the the diners of London aren't aren't adverse to to a chain, really. What's the point of a gourmet burger? Oh, that's a controversial one. I think I'm not... Won over by burgers in the way that quite a lot of people are. I think I've got burger fatigue. There's a few too many of them about at the moment. But I, I, I guess it comes down to comfort food in a way. People like to just have something that they can take a bite out of and it, and it feels a bit like the, the McDonald's experience, but you know you're eating better meat and you've got good ingredients in there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I, I find myself noticing that uh, when I, I can't be bothered to cook and I can't be bothered to go somewhere that I know is a, a, at least a little bit good for me, and I drift into a junk food place. It cost me substantially more than it would if I'd gone down the, the healthier, uh, more nutritious route. What about finding healthy food in a, a city like ours? We're all pressed for time, but plenty of uh, supermarket express stores selling sandwiches and bits of stuff which might not be the healthiest. Um, if you want to get some good ingredients, we were talking earlier about quality ingredients. Uh, in London, where are the places to
3: go? I would say, um, I would say, if you want to get good ingredients and not pay a fortune for them, go to a market and. I'm a big fan of farmer's markets where you can get really gourmet stuff.
0: Oh, you've, you've just made a big distinction there, haven't you? Because on, on the one, a lot of people will have the image of, um, well, actually, no, there, there's, a, there's a third. I was going to say that you'll have the, your standard markets um, where people have, have got their food from for, for uh, centuries. And then the farmer's markets, which is a sort of a cut above and slightly more refined product. But there's, there's the, the third option, isn't there, which is the off-license with the trays of veg uh, sticking out into the road with all the traffic fumes uh, enveloping them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I would be talking in this instance about going to one of uh, the, the first or the last option you, meant, you mentioned there. I think farmers markets are great for certain things, cheese, meats, anything that you, you want to pay a, a bit more for to get a, a better product. But in honesty, I think they're a lot of the time a bit of a rip off for your veg and your fruit. I think go to a, a proper old traditional London market. They're friendly, they're cheap. You get a, you can Manhandle the fruit before you buy it to see if it's if it's how you want it, um, and yeah, you, you'll pay so much less than you would in the supermarket.
0: Manhandle
3: the fruit. <laughs> well, you know you've got to check it's all right before you you buy it. <laughs> I think I've just
0: gone off buying any fruit that you from a market that you've previously visited. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, well, near near where I live, um, I live sort of London Fields area. There's loads and loads of, like, the groceries that you're talking about um, where they're sort of out on the streets, and I don't mind that, actually. I kind of live off a lot of that. You know, they have um, two big bunches of, like, spinach for £1.50 and a jar of tahini paste, and that's, like pretty much most of a meal like right there for me it's great
0: they do seem to have i must say i, I mean I, I agree with you I, I shop at those places as well uh, i'm just uh, extraordinarily neurotic and uh, you look at the prices of those things and you for example if you want a pepper then there'll be a lovely great uh, as big as a uh, as big as your fist at least as big as your fist. huge great i've got big fists and then you go into the supermarket and there's these tiny little things very very tight clearly picked two right cellophaned up and three times the price and i, I can't I quite understand why everybody's getting their food there
3: the only thing that i would say in favor of the supermarkets is that what they do offer is convenience and i think for all the great food shops and great food markets in london not that many of them yet are catering for people who who work uh, during the day and can't get out and by the time they're home everything is shut apart from the supermarket so it's all very well to, to knock the supermarket, and I've done it myself at times, but at the end of the day, if it's all that's there, you're going to have to use it.
0: What would you like to see, uh, then, in terms of uh, cooking, food preparation, maybe eating? What's, what, what's missing from the food scene, as far as you can see? Um, and whether that's on the level of finding ingredients or, or something else altogether.
3: I think London could do with, with more late-night shops. That it, what if you know, a great butcher shop, a fishmonger's, um, a really nice little deli, why aren't some of them open late? I mean, probably, I, I wouldn't know the percentage, but I imagine a very high percentage of Londoners work 9 to 5 or something similar and can't get into these shops during the day. So even if they staggered their opening hours and opened later and stayed open a bit later, I think that would be really helpful for a lot of people.
0: Right, and and, and that uh, really pulls into the whole question of why London isn't.
3: (laughs) We we treat it
0: as though it's a little country town, though, in terms of our opening hours. I've never quite understood why we're not a 24 hour city, but we seem determined not to be.
1: And I think also something that Amir said, going into shops and asking, what's this for? What do I do with that? And if, if more people were ready to answer your question, I think that would be good. A lot of people are, if you do ask. But, you know, there's some people like, oh, I don't know. Like, if, if people are a bit more open to encouraging other people to try stuff and cook what they cook, I think that'd be great.
0: You're possibly the most positive-minded person I've ever met.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I,
0: I imagine you must be ha- haunted by some demon or something that, uh, <laughs> that we're not quite perceiving. <laughs> From, from where comes this positivity to you?
1: I'm from the East Midlands and I'm not out uh, on me yet.
0: <laughs> we need to be drinking the East Midlands water, I would say.
3: In terms of London not being very 24 hours, I think. It's a bit rubbish how early things shut in London, whether that's trying to get a, a drink after 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night or whether it's trying to get some decent food. Um, there, has, there have been a few 24-hour restaurants open recently, um, Duck and Waffle in the Heron Tower near Liverpool Street being one in particular. You're the second person who's mentioned the Duck and Waffle to me. What's going on up there? Well, it's, um, it's two restaurants. There's Sushi Samba and there's Duck and Waffle. Duck and Waffle is it's an all-day eating concept, maybe slightly American-leaning but, but quite eclectic food. And fantastic views. You're right next to the gherkin, but you're higher than it. So it's a it's a lovely place to eat. It's quite affordable. Not cheap, but it is affordable. Um, and that apparently is doing very well, and they're regularly turning over about 60 or more covers during the hours of 2 and 5, which I don't know who these people are, but I'm quite happy to be one of them from time to time. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the 24-hour tube affects restaurant openings and if councils are more willing to grant 24-hour licences and if restaurateurs think it's more worth their while being open late but I don't know.
0: Yes we should say that's only the weekends at the moment isn't it that we're looking at uh, 24-hour tubes. I'd love to see what would happen if we experimented with 24-hour tube through the week for a little while and um, see if that gives an injection to businesses that could could make a little extra.
3: Absolutely. In some respects I think that a 24-hour tube during the week could actually be more beneficial because at the weekend you don't have to get up the next day and so you're not in such a hurry to get home quickly whereas on a thursday night if you get home more quickly and be ready for work the next day it would probably encourage people to stay out a bit later
0: i suppose the danger thinking about it though 24 hour tube is going to privilege the big stores isn't it because they'll be able to lay on extra stuff if you're uh, exactly one of the sort of shops that you were talking about earlier a butcher or a grocer or whatever and and they've only got one or two people there they're not going to be able to do 24
3: hours yeah no that's that's very true i think it's it's a difficult thing for a small business to to keep staffing levels up and i guess ultimately if they are open longer and have more staff then the prices might have to go up and then will people shop there anyway because it might price people out
0: i've uh, changed my mind about everything we've been talking about that we should <laughs> strictly stay 95 uh miriam what about you what would you like to see uh, in terms of uh, provision
1: in terms of like late night opening, or uh,
0: not necessarily. No, maybe it's uh, sort of access to ingredients that you'd like to get hold of, or um, maybe it's in terms of just the the, the ethos around food.
1: Thanks. Mm.
0: <laughs> <Yikes>. um. <laughs> we, we will immediately implement whatever you say.
1: Oh god! No pressure. Um.
0: Maybe there's nothing in particular. That you see, I mean, this is a symptom of your uh, general positivity, isn't it? You're happy with what's what's yeah, there. Well,
1: if, it, if it's not there, then I'll just try something else. So I think, yeah, it's just more of a discussion. Like if, I mean, I I lived in um, more sort of Tottenham area for a bit, and um, the local shops had amazing vegetables and fruit and stuff. But you couldn't get cream in in the shop. You just it, they just didn't sell it um, until they opened a Sainsbury's opposite. But you know, you just make something else. You just have different recipes like, yeah you just get on with it
0: why aren't you working in conflict resolution <laughs> and, and your name is nice this is uh, we should finish on a positive note because uh, I, I think that that's the only way we could isn't it? your uh, best or a couple of your best eating experiences uh, at home or abroad within the 25
3: oh um it's difficult to pick out of just a, a few experiences because there's so semi- many that are good in different ways. But recently, I went to Ember Yard um, restaurant in Soho from the Salt Yard group. Would highly recommend it. They have a lot of smoked food, so maybe that's just me sort of missing my my smoker that's at home. But I would I would definitely recognise that recommend that. Sorry, and um, yeah, they do a really nice smoked Negroni. So. Uh,
0: you're not addicted to smoking, are you?
3: well apparently it can damage your health so i shouldn't be but um yeah i do quite like a a good bit of smoked food
1: um well i had a really nice weekend at the maltby street market which i I really like and you can just have a little wander around everyone's really nice the food's lovely and you can just buy some of the food and then go and sit in a furniture shop and eat it there like it's just really relaxed and and lovely lovely atmosphere whereabouts is that it's near the shard um yeah yeah somewhere near there
0: Oh, so you've got you've got Borough
3: Market down there, of course. Is it is it close by there?
1: It's a bit further round. It's in Arches, a, a selection of Arches. Yeah,
3: just off Bermondsey Street. Um, I actually I, I also love Market um, Street Market. I live not too far away from there. There's a bar called Bartazino, which um, is a lovely Spanish. Um, Place with meat, um, hams just hanging throughout around the house. Are, are
0: they smoked by any chance?
3: They're, they're not smoked, but I, I did make the mistake of taking a vegetarian there, which I don't think she appreciated—the sort of the, the smell of, of fermenting flesh around her. But it is—it's a, a great place otherwise. She didn't like the food either. <laughs> no, the food.
0: Um, how are things going between you, by the way? <laughs>
3: um, yeah, yeah, no, it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's it's it survived the the meat incident. Yeah. We, we can't. <laughs> we can't finish on that line
0: <laughs> we should come to a conclusion not least because we've uh, a few pakoras still to go there and i'm really hoping to get hold of one of those before either of you two have uh, finished giving your uh, website details and uh, an idea of where people can find out more about you and uh, miriam are you still blogging
1: yeah still blogging at miriamnice.com forward slash blog that's where you'll find my latest ramblings yeah
0: and the book, of course, is published by Pedestrian Publishing. How do we get hold of a copy of this? Because it's not your standard not your standard publication, is it?
1: No, it isn't. It's a very limited um, run because each of the copies is handmade. Um, you can go into most bookshops and ask for it, um, or you can go to the Pedestrian Publishing website and, and order it directly from them.
3: And Ben? Well, uh, keep an eye on Londonist, obviously, um, and all the food and drink content there, and that's, that's where you'll, you'll see a lot of my writing. Um, you can follow me on Twitter as well, at Ben Norham, and I'll just be talking about food mainly, sometimes offensive. Hopefully not too much.
0: <laughs> well, you're going to be offensive.
3: On Twitter, I have been known to be a bit of a, a, a grumbler, should I say. Oh, so you're one of these
0: people who's got this whole other life on Twitter. You're, you're Mr. Respectable the rest of the time, but then you'll lash out on Twitter.
3: No, I would just, if I if I go to a, a restaurant and don't get the... Something something isn't too good about the the treatment, I might mention it on Twitter quite often.
0: (laughs) I think we've pulled the mask off in the last thirty seconds. Miriam Nice Ben Noram, thanks very much indeed. Thank
1: you. Thank you very
0: much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Miriam Nice, Ben Noram and Arne Ahmad. Thank you too to our hosts at Zambora. The website there, ww.zambora.com. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.